You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the word of our God together. We turn this afternoon to Psalm 31, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness, turn your ear to me, come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your love, for you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. You have not handed me over to the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors. I am a dread to my friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten by them as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. For I hear the slander of many, there is terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I have cried out to you. But let the wicked be put to shame and lie silent in the grave. Let their lying lips be silenced, for with pride and contempt they speak arrogantly against the righteous. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. In the shelter of your presence you hide them from the intrigues of men. In your dwelling you keep them safe from accusing tongues. Praise be to the Lord, for he has showed his wonderful love to me when I was in a besieged city. In my alarm I said I am cut off from your sight. Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Love the Lord. All is saints. The Lord preserves the faithful. But the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart. All you who hope in the Lord. We continue our series of sermons this afternoon on the canons of Dort. Let us turn to the fifth chapter. The articles 7, 8, and 9. Article 7 
page 567, God will again renew his elect to repentance. And there it says, for in the first place, in their fall, he preserves in them his imperishable seed of regeneration so that it does not perish and is not cast out. Further, through his word and spirit, he certainly and effectually renews them to repentance. As a result, they grieve from the heart with a godly sorrow for the sins they have committed. And they seek and obtain through faith with a contrite heart forgiveness in the blood of the mediator. They again experience the favor of a reconciled God and adore his mercies and faithfulness. And from now on, they more diligently work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Article 8, the grace of the triune God preserves. So it is not through their own merits or strengths, but through the undeserved mercy of God that they neither totally fall away from faith and grace, nor remain in their downfall and are finally lost. With respect to themselves, this could not only easily happen, but would undoubtedly happen. But with respect to God, this cannot possibly happen. Since his counsel cannot be changed, his promise cannot fail, the calling according to his purpose cannot be revoked, the merit, intercession, and preservation of Christ cannot be nullified, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit can neither be frustrated nor destroyed. Article 9, the assurance of this preservation. Believers themselves can be certain of this preservation of the elect to salvation and the perseverance of true believers in the faith. And they are indeed certain according to the measure of their faith by which firmly they firmly believe that they are and always shall remain true and living members of the church and that they have forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, we are back this afternoon to considering a point of Christian teaching that has fallen into great neglect today. For there was a time when, for example, the Anglican Church of England and Canada was Calvinistic and upheld these five points of the canons. Read only the 39 articles of faith of the Church of England, official standards still today. There was also a time when most Baptist churches were Calvinistic. Dig into your history books and surprise, surprise, you will learn this. And there was also a time when many other churches also held Reformed distinctives very high. But alas, today in many parts of the world this is no longer the case. Certainly not, I would say, in North America or in Western Europe. However, in Africa and Asia, it is thankfully different. And the result is that today you see an Anglican archbishop in Africa leading the charge to direct his church back to its historic doctrinal roots. And the result is, too, that there are so many churches in China begging for solid biblical reform teaching. They want to grow they want to deepen in their knowledge of the Word of God. They're tired of hype and hoopla. But nevertheless, in spite of such hunger abroad, we often meet indifference at home. 
While new churches grow and are filled with new members who want to discover more and who want to grow, there are old churches at home that are filled with old-time believers who are tired and have lost their spark and their edge. When confronted with any number of points of doctrine or teaching, they yawn. These long-time members are much more interested in their holidays, their parties, the toys, than they are in really connecting with the faith. And the result of that kind of an attitude, well, it usually shows itself in massive doctrinal indifference. Who cares about conversion? Who cares about assurance? And naturally, who cares about the perseverance of the saints? It's as if these things don't matter. It's as if they no longer touch our lives. But you know they do. Take the man who turned to Christ for salvation and who made the following comment, I I hope that three weeks from now, I'm still a Christian. Imagine living every day with that kind of uncertainty. What does that not do to your conversion? As well as to your confidence, conviction, and assurance. And unfortunately, there are many people like that. They don't know any better because they've never been taught any better. They live daily with the idea that that salvation may be theirs now, but a month from now it may be gone. They've been brought up before the idea that Christianity may be great for a time, but it doesn't necessarily last. God may meet your needs today, but tomorrow he may drop you like a hot potato. How sad. How tragic. And even more, how unbiblical. You know, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, verse 29, For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. You see, the truth tells a different story. When God saves you today, he saves you not only for today, but also for tomorrow. And for eternity as well. For the works of God are not fickle or tenuous or vulnerable. They're true. They're lasting. They're solid as a rock. Yes, and last time we were reminded of that when we looked at Articles 4, 5, and 6 of the Canons. And there in chapter 5, the canons reminded us, according to the scripture, that while God preserves his own, his own are not necessarily exempt from falling into serious sins. And in that connection, we will refer to David and to Peter. But the canons even then gave us a rather detailed description of what happens when saints fall. But still in the end, God does not allow his elect to fall so far and so deep that their salvation is lost. Well, that's how far we came last time. But now this time, beloved, we need to move on for there are more questions, there are more challenges, there are more issues to tackle. 
And therefore, I want to preach to you this afternoon in the following theme. God keeps His children. And we shall see that He does so by renewing them to repentance, preserving them in grace, assuring them of salvation. My beloved, God keeps His children. What a, what a reassuring truth. God's children may fall, they may stumble, they may even take some really bad spiritual tumbles. And we've read about those in the Bible, and maybe we know about them from church history. And perhaps we've even experienced that kind of things in our own life or in our own neighborhood. For example, I remember very well getting a phone call one morning that a man I knew and had always respected had packed his bags, left his wife and children, and gone off to live with his boyfriend. He believed that he was gay, and now he was off exploring the homosexual world and its lifestyle. Sometimes when these things happen, you're shocked, but perhaps not completely so. Sometimes, you know, you get these inklings ahead of time. You you sense that something is different or, or something is perhaps not genuine with a particular person. But you know, at other times, there's none of that. There's this man or this woman who has always come across as committed, sincere, serious, knowledgeable. And, and when someone like that falls, it hits you. But it happens. Indeed, it happens all the time. Saints do fall. And when they do fall, what then? Do the rest of us write them off? Do we erase them out of our memory banks? Do we consign them to hell? Beloved, be careful. Be very, very, very careful. And why? Because you may one day find yourself in the same predicament. Sometimes those who condemn the loudest later do the same thing and worse. They fall. Pride goes before the fall. Remember. But something else as well. When you hear of a brother or sister falling, that may be the moment when you and I need to spring into action. But does the Apostle Paul not say to the Galatians, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You see, when others fall, that's a signal for the rest of us to get to work. God calls us. But then he calls us not to get into the rejection business, but into the restoration business. But that's not all. 
For not only does God call you and I to action, but He also springs into action Himself. And what kind of action? Well, read, beloved, Article 7 of the Canons. There it says that while we are to be in the restoring business, He Himself is in the renewing or the repentance business. And what that means is that He begins to work in these people with His Word and with His Spirit. How precisely He does that is shrouded in mystery. Although from article or chapter 3, 4, article 11 on page 556 of the canons, we receive a lot of hints. And by the way, in on page 556, article 11, a lot of the hints are to be found in the verbs. Notice it says there, part way down the article, by the efficacious working of the same regenerating spirit, he also penetrates into the innermost recesses of man. He opens the closed and softens the hard heart, circumcises that which was uncircumcised, instills new qualities into the will. He makes the will which was dead alive, which was good or bad good, which was unwilling willing and which was stubborn, obedient. That, beloved, in a way, is a description of how God works conversion. And, of course, conversion differs from renewal or repentance. But I think there is a sense in which we can take our cue from Article 11 and imagine a march of verbs in the case of a man or a woman who has fallen. Something like, God will not leave them alone. He does not allow their consciences to rest. He confronts them with the truth. He chips away at their stubbornness. He destroys the illusions of their sinful ways of living. He gives them no peace, happiness, or contentment. Truly, God works in them. And the result... Article 7 says, as a result, they grieve from the heart with a godly sorrow for the sins they have committed. They seek and obtain through faith with a contrite heart forgiveness of sins in the blood of the mediator. They again experience the favor of a reconciled God and adore his mercies and faithfulness. Beautifully put. But you know, even more beautifully experienced, God causes them to grieve and to seek. And the result is that they obtain experience and adore Him again. And what blessings! What real blessings as well! You know, earlier the canons, I said, mentioned David and Peter as examples of saints who had fallen. Well, it could just as well have mentioned them as examples of saints who have repented and been restored. And of course, they're not the only ones. Think of Jacob, King Manasseh, the prodigal son, Zacchaeus, so many others in the Bible. And also, what about saints today? Thankfully, God keeps on working. 
and working in us too. And he brings us from the world of darkness and of death. True, there are some who fall, who never come back and show thereby that they were never true saints. But there are others whom God brings back and who become more diligent than ever as they work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And what a comfort, beloved, to know this. And what a reminder for us not to give up on the saints who fall. You know, sometimes we do that so easily and so quickly. Someone commits a really embarrassing sin and we write them off. Instead, we should be praying for them. And we should also be seeking opportunities to restore them. And as always, we should look to God to bring them to repentance and return. Oh, beloved, and when he does, for truly he does, let's make sure that we give him the credit You can say in a way that's what Article 8 is all about. It's about giving the credit to one whom the credit is due. And unfortunately, we don't always do that. Also not when it comes to repentance. For what is it that often happens? Someone repents and is renewed. And and what do we do? We congratulate them on their great spiritual comeback and achievement. We shake their hands and we give them a hug. And we say, am I ever glad to see that you saw the light and decided to turn your life around? Now, I'm not saying that those words of congratulations are totally out of order. But, you know, you do need to exercise some care and some caution here. And in addition, the person who repents needs to exercise some caution in the way in which they speak about themselves. If they come across as, I'm back. Because God saw too much potential in me to let me go. Or, I did it. I was determined to turn my life around. I decided to exercise my free will. And I determined to go back to God and to His service. Well, those aren't very good signs. Too many eyes are never a good sign. They show that that person really has no eye for God's grace, mercy, power, and goodness in bringing them back. And you know, that's why the canons put it this way. So it's not through their own merits or strengths, but through the undeserved mercy of God that they neither totally fall away from faith and grace nor remain in their downfall and are finally lost. And that it adds for good measure with respect to themselves. This could not easily happen, but would undoubtedly happen. In other words, left to their own resources and devices. 
these fallen saints would all still be in their sins and in their sinful lifestyles. And the only reason they are not there is God. It has everything to do with God alone. That's all because of who He is and how He works at their back. And you know, in that connection, the canon search the Scriptures and they summarize. They make a list. A list as to why God does what He does. And you can find that list. You find it in Article 8. It goes as follows. Since His counsel cannot be changed. That's number one. That's based on Psalm 33 and the words, But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of His heart through all generations. You know, Ephesians 1 speaks about God choosing His people before the foundation, the creation of the world. In other words, He makes His plans already then. And what God decides to do, the psalmist says, cannot be changed. It will be done. His counsel cannot be changed. And secondly, his promise cannot fail. The footnote in the margin points us to Hebrews 6, 17. It could also have pointed us to verse 15 and the words, Abraham received what was promised. In other words, God's promises, not our promises, God's promises always come to pass. And he never goes back on them. If he's promised you salvation, you will receive salvation. And also the canons remind us, according to the scriptures, number three, the calling cannot be revoked. You know, there is a reference to Romans 8, the verses 30 and 34 in the margin, where Paul says first that predestination, calling, justification, glorification. You know, it's all tied together. And then he asks rhetorically, who is he that condemns? Who shall separate us from the love of God? You see, Paul is saying God issues no recalls. His calling cannot be revoked or annulled. Number four, the canons mention the merit intercession and the preservation of Christ also cannot be nullified. And there you have a reference to Luke 22, verse 32, and it has to do with a conversation between Christ and Peter. And in it, Christ reveals the reason why Peter is still around in spite of everything. He reveals the reason when he says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. What marvelous insight into Peter's perseverance. 
It happened because Christ was praying for him. And no doubt what he did for him, he is still busy doing today for his innumerable multitude of saints. He's keeping them. He's preserving them. He's praying for them. He's praying for us. Finally, the canons say the sealing of the Holy Spirit can neither be frustrated or destroyed. And there it points us to Ephesians 1.13. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. You know, in the ancient world, whenever you had something of value, you marked it with your seal. And that showed that that particular item belonged to you and not to your neighbor. But in the same way, the Apostle Paul says, the Holy Spirit has placed his stamp or his seal on those whom the Father has given to him in the Son. There he is. They belong to him. And he will never let them go. Oh, but beloved, perhaps all along you thought that the reason for your preservation resided within you. Foolish man, foolish woman. Open your eyes and see that your merits and your strengths would have achieved nothing. And instead direct your eyes to the triune God to the counsel, promise, and calling of the Father, to the merit, intercession, and preservation of the Son, and to the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And rejoice in what they together have done for you. And you can. Notice Article 9 is next. And it tells us that the elect can be certain of this preservation. They can be certain according to the measure of their faith. They can firmly believe that they are and always shall remain true and living members of the church. They can know that they have forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Now when you first hear that, you think, my, isn't that ever conceited talk? And inflated. And we're usually careful and circumspect about these things. None of us wants to toot his or her horn too much. Neither do we want to come across, at least in public, as too confident. And yet you know, there's a place and a time for everything. Why, there's even a time for real certainty and good confidence. And I say that, beloved, because I've learned it from the Apostle Paul, and I'm sure the Apostle Paul has learned it from the Holy Spirit. And what did he learn? He learned to boast. He learned to boast and to sing to the Lord. Specifically, he learned to boast and to sing about the Lord's great mercy and goodness to him. And you all have his song. You find it at the end of Romans 8. 
What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? As it is written, for your sake we die. We face death every day. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither heights nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does that sound like a man lacking assurance? Does that sound like a man walking around with his head and his hands bemoaning his fate because I have salvation today but I may not have it tomorrow? Hardly. And neither do his words to Timothy. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. But of those words express the hope and the confidence that the Lord gave to the Apostle Paul. And may he give the same hope and the same confidence to each and every one of us in rich and abiding abundance. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.